for cultivating progress across the South, for working to unconditionally improve the lives of all, and for the bold underwriting of every Gravy podcast, SFA thanks our visionary Louisville, Kentucky friends, Pam and Brooke Smith. Dunty, I know you love a story about my mountain upbringing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so it won't surprise you to learn that as a child in Kentucky, I canned at home, specifically at my Granny Booth's house. She canned everything from beans and tomatoes and jams to the highly experimental canned whole baby crab apples. That was not a successful experiment. <laughs> that scares me. <laughs> Um, I, I have a canning history, too. Um, as a boy, I worked at the Osage Packing Company in Haddock, Georgia. What'd you can? We canned peaches at Osage. They also did um, pimentos for pimento cheese. Nice. Um, but what I did was I stood on this platform with a stick. And when the cans of peaches came down the chute heading towards the boxes and they got hung up at this one turn, I'd hit a can with a, with a stick to free it so it could continue on its way to be boxed. That was my job. That's not exactly canning, John T. I was involved in the process. <laughs> Community canneries occupy that space in between. Right. They make possible more volume than a home cook can produce. And in community canneries, home cooks can work in volume without having to make profits. In one corner of Virginia, community canneries still serve people who garden on a grand scale. And after all, where else can you process 70 pounds of something in a day? Quartz, John T. It'd be quartz. (sighs) 70 pounds is easy. (laughs) I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm John T. Edge. We're your hosts for Gravy. 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 A production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells new and complicated stories about the changing American South. Reporter Caleb Johnson explores the community canneries of Southwest Virginia. When I meet Arnold and Donna LaFon at the Carroll County Cannery in tiny Hillsville, Virginia, one morning this summer, they tell me they stayed up till midnight shelling October beans. If the couple's tired, it doesn't show. By 10 a.m., they're happily prepping their last batch of beans. And we're through with this one then, aren't we? Yeah, Okay. The LaFonge drove an hour from their home outside Withville, Virginia. The Hillsville Cannery was the closest one open that day. When a vegetable is ready to be harvested and canned, there's no time to waste. Canning runs deep in LaFonge family history. From the time I was able to walk, uh, we had a garden and we canned at home. That's Arnold. He's a big man wearing big glasses, and he grew up on a farm. You want to find something to do, you just come to my house, sit down in front of the television. You don't have to worry about sitting there very long. You either had weeds to pull or firewood to carry in, something to do all the time. And that's what, when you live on a farm, that's just the way it is. Arnold's mother ran the community cannery in Blacksburg, Virginia, for 25 years. At 100, she's no longer able to garden or can like she used to, but she still manages to take part in the process. Now, she sat out there on the blacktop and watched us uh, pick them, make sure we're doing it right, uh, yesterday. After spending time in a blancher, the October beans are ready for canning. Arnold and Donna line up glass jars, not metal cans, on a stainless steel work table. They scoop beans into each, then add salt and hot water. 
They cap the jars, then carefully place them in a metal basket, which is raised, then lowered, by a chain hoist into an industrial pressure cooker. And now we try to get it to 240, and it cooks for 90 minutes. That's Sarah Griggs. She runs the Carroll County Cannery, its sole employee, in fact. Her mantra, yes, we can. Yes, we can. The canning process dates back to 1700s France. Napoleon offered a reward of 12,000 francs to anyone who invented a way to preserve food so he could safely feed troops. A winner took 15 years to emerge. A candy maker and chef came up with sealing food jars with wax. He wrapped these jars in canvas, then boiled them. Air was driven out, and the heat destroyed dangerous microorganisms. As the jars cooled, a vacuum seal formed, preventing air from getting back in and spoiling the food. The process remains largely the same. On a busy day like this one, the Carroll County cannery is loud. Steam whistles as pressure builds. Vents gasp hot air. Water pours through the blancher. So while the October beans cook, I ask Arnold and Donna to join me somewhere quieter and cooler too. We sit in a room that reminds me of a teacher's lounge. After seeing what it takes to can a large quantity of beans, I ask why at 70 plus years old, they still put in the effort. We raise our produce for the most part. So we know what's there from beginning to end. When you go to the store and buy something canned or even frozen for that matter, but primarily canned, you don't know what you're getting. It does not taste the same. Arnold and Donna came of age in a time and place where what you grew and preserved in summer and fall was what you ate for the next six months until spring. Much of that work was, and still is, done at home. As in the garden, Donna says Arnold's mother is in charge in the kitchen. His mother sits on a stool in front of the stove the entire time that pressure is up. So she watches that gauge. If it gets more than one or two pounds off, she adjusts her temperature. But canning at home has its drawbacks. People fear pressure cookers, and even with an elaborate setup like the LaFons, it's time consuming. So we've got two or three pressure cookers, so you can keep one on, take it off, put another one on. That's a slow process. It's slow. How many you can do at one yeah, time? You only do seven quarts at a time. <laughs> so when you come up here and you do 70 quarts at a time. Government funded community canneries date back to the late 1800s. They boomed during World War I and II when Americans grew backyard victory gardens in response to nationwide food shortages. A Washington Post tally found that at one point, there were 3,800 public canneries in the United States. The Carroll County Cannery, which was funded by the county, opened in the fall of 1943. Locals were encouraged to sign up for a class on, quote, the production, conservation, and processing of foods for farm families. That original cannery, it no longer stands. The old cannery burnt down in 2000, and it was across the street. And the county was not going to build another one. And the granny ladies, who are dead now, said, oh, yes, you are. Sarah mentions granny ladies with a respect and understanding that the knowledge they possess is crucial to canning and a sense of community in places like Hillsville. She tells me Virginia has the most community canneries still in operation of any state, 10. Sarah and others I talked to for this story attribute that to the granny ladies and the region's character. It's very rural, it's spread out. We're an agricultural area. Today, there's a Walmart located about 10 miles from downtown. But in winter, snow will fall, making roads impassable. So it's comforting to know your pantry's stocked with dozens of jars filled with already cooked food. 
Arnold and Donna end up paying about 78 cents a quart jar for the October beans today. That's in addition to the hours they spent growing, picking, shelling, and prepping the beans. For them, it's worth it because canning means more than its surface level function. It's also a way to slow down, to spend time with family members. Even though your hands are working, your mind is going. And one of the kids will say something that'll bring back a memory. And you'll find yourself talking about it and expanding on it and so forth. So it, it's just, I think, the people that do this kind of thing don't normally have time. And that gives you the time. When we come back, we hold our breath as they open the pressure cooker to discover if their jars cracked. Ooh. But first... Maker's Mark Bourbon is aged to taste in Loretto, Kentucky. The Samuels family uses locally grown soft red winter wheat and sources water from a lake on the distillery's campus. Every Maker's Mark label is printed and die cut by hand on an antique press, and each bottle is hand dipped in their signature red wax. All the details matter when distilling quality bourbon. Since Maker's Mark sold its first case of bourbon to the Keeneland Racecourse in Lexington, they have perfected the craft of distilling American whiskey. For their dedication to making great bourbon and for their support of the Southern Foodways Alliance, we thank them. Maker's Mark crafts their bourbon carefully. Please enjoy it that way. The winch grinds against the basket's weight as it's pulled out of the hissing pressure cooker. The basket sways and jars clink against each other. Let me swing this over to them. The basket gently lands on a wheeled wooden pallet. Sarah rolls the jars to a work table where Arnold and Donna wait. Using dish towels to protect their hands, they begin pulling jars from the basket, layer by layer, checking for cracks, making sure lids are sealed. Sarah's job is to run the machinery, but she can't resist helping out wherever she sees a need. To her, canning's a lifestyle. She's the first to arrive, the last to leave, working well beyond the hours paid for by the county. When they hired me, they said, your hours are Monday through Friday, 7 to 3.30. I said, who cans between 7 and 3.30? Nobody I know. Everyone isn't a farmer. They have work schedules that make it difficult to get to the cannery during the week. If somebody wants to have something, they'll call, and I'll say, sure, come on. If I'm here, I open on Saturdays. Sarah holds a jar aloft. Cooking has transformed the beans from pearl white and pink to a light brown. Now see that, look at there. When you shake them, look beautiful. Arnold looks on, grinning with anticipation of meals to come. I can have them for supper. Big old bowl of onions, cornbread. Eventually, they come across a jar that cracked in the cooker. This happens. Maybe the jars were old. Maybe they were packed too tightly together. Like any method of cooking, no two batches of jars ever come out exactly the same. So I would say 95% did pretty good. So we lost one out of 80. I think we did okay. While Arnold and Donna load their jars of October beans into a cardboard box, Sarah hoists another cage from the second pressure cooker. And it's actually the hardest part because you don't want to shake them, you don't know what's going on, you're afraid you're going to break, everybody cries. <laughs> Look at that. This one contains half-gallon jars filled with vegetable soup. The jars are radiant, dripping water. The soup's tomato base is bright red, a stark contrast to the room's white walls. So this 
The soup jars are cooling on a table when their owner shows up. Come on, Nevada, you're going to be on a podcast, yeah? Nevada Martin has other things to attend to before worrying about any questions I have. Like making sure her jars have sealed and are handled, or in this case, not handled, exactly the way she learned. Don't touch them. That's something my mother never would let us do. Well, she told us to walk no, no, no. Don't ever touch mine. <laughs> no, my mother, when she canned, we didn't touch nothing until the next day. She got them out of, her, out of the, the canner, put them on the table, and that was it. I tried to can like my mother and my, and my grandmother and my mother-in-law. Never touch those lids. Never. Canning is superstition and science. Jostling a jar might cause it not to seal. You want to wait for a particular sound. The ping is they're sealed. They're pinging. Nevada learned her patience and practice from her grandmother, who canned in a big iron pot set in the yard. Now, Nevada's passing on her knowledge to her granddaughter. Hi, I'm Ashley Cox. I've always been one for keeping like stuff that we do in our family keep it going because it's such a dying art, you know, just like, you know, needlepoint and things like that. It's family time. We all get together, we all do it, we laugh, we tell stories, we cut all this stuff up. It's rewarding to know that you did it yourself, you know, it was food that you watched from the ground all the way to the can. I mean, that's why I want to keep it going because it's something I can do on my own that can feed my children and say, you know, this is what I did. I did this. But Ashley says she's in the minority among her peers. She's 27. Most don't grow gardens, even fewer can, at home or in the Carroll County facility. Aside from a couple of young boys helping their mother and Ashley, the other canners I see look at least old enough to draw Social Security. But I think it's important, I really do, especially for this area in the Appalachian Mountains. It started out in this area out of necessity. You had to grow your own food because you lived in the mountains. You had to drive 30, 40 miles just to get anywhere. And I mean, I know we can go to the store now, but it's just, I don't know. There's something about that. You're proud of it, you know? Like for others in the area, gardening and canning aren't an absolute necessity for Nevada Martin anymore. But she still lives as if they were. All I buy usually from the store is like flour, meal, sugar, milk, you know. No, well, we eat everything we can. I guess last year we canned over what? About 600 cans, didn't we? If not more. While Ashley carries jars to add to this year's larder, I sit down with Nevada and Sarah Griggs. These women, share a special bond. For 13 years, Sarah worked at the produce stand next door to the cannery. I used to see people over here all the time, and I used to cry when things would go out of season. And I said to myself, I'm going to learn to can. But there was a problem. You can't just come in and say, hey, I want to I learn how to can. It just doesn't work like that. The thing about canning is you kind of have to have a granny lady show you. Enter Nevada Martin. When Sarah became interested in canning, it was Nevada, one of those granny ladies, who showed her the ropes. Nevada's used the Carroll County cannery since the 1970s. Sarah was willing to listen, and she was also willing to put in the work. You work hard, you sweat in the summer to have food in the winter. That's the whole concept of canning. And that's why it's kind of a dying breed, because it's time consuming. To drive this point home, Sarah urges Nevada to tell me what all went into preparing those half-gallon jars of vegetable soup. 
I had to go buy the tomatoes. We had to bring the, uh, the tomatoes here, had to wash your jars. Sarah and I, we cut them up in quarters, get all the bad out of the, you know, so you won't put a bad tomato in. You cook your tomatoes down, then you take it to the little grinder, pulper. I feel exhausted just listening to her describe the process. She leaves out all the other vegetables she prepped for the soup and the fact that you have to unload the jars at home and store them somewhere too. Is there anything that you can't put in vegetable soup? No. All the leftovers, it went in soup. We didn't throw anything away. Sitting side by side, the women rattle off some things they've canned together. Pickles, pasta sauce, corn, peaches. All that work in a humid room, forged, a friendship. But Sarah doesn't see Nevada around the cannery as much as she used to. Nevada used to be here in can when the doors open till the doors closed. This is the first time she's been here all summer. Yeah. She hasn't been able to can because sickness, health, uh, and the granny ladies don't have any support. And they, granny ladies, say, Sarah, it's cheaper for me to can at home. Well, no, it's not, because you're burning up your air conditioner. It's a 1,000 degrees. And your stove. And you're burning your yeah, stove up. Yeah. I've gone through several s- stoves canning at home. It's just really, it is, it's cheaper uh, to come over here to do it, really. Because, like I said, it takes more labor. Yeah. Nevada isn't the only one who's spending less time canning these days. And as that practice fades, so does the community of people around it. Which reminds me of a story Arnold told. A large oak tree stands beside the LaFon's house. Every year they sit underneath it and shell beans. People driving past stop to visit, one neighbor in particular. Whenever he'd see us sitting out there, he always stopped. He, he couldn't stand it. He, he, if he went by a little bit, he'd be back. You know, he <laughs> and he'd come out there and sit and talk. That neighbor is now deceased. This summer, the LaFons staked their usual spot beneath the oak branches, bushels of beans at their feet. And ordinarily, years ago, we'd had at least three or four people stop and check on something, but nobody stopped yet. We didn't have nobody stopped. Nobody. He tried to wave them down, but no one stopped. <laughs> Caleb Johnson reported this episode. Caleb is the author of the novel Treeborn and teaches writing at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. Irina Zhorov produced this episode. Special thanks go to... We thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music, Jazar for our donor music, and audio engineer Charlie Kyer. Managing editor for Gravy and all other SFA media is Sarah Camp Milan. She's never been involved in canning. <laughs> Mary Beth Lassiter serves as our publisher. She has. If you like listening to Gravy Podcast, we think you'd love reading SFA's quarterly journal, Gravy. SFA members get Gravy in their mailbox four times a year. Visit southernfoodways.org to read back issues of Gravy and make a donation to the SFA. Please. I'm Melissa Hall. I'm John T. Edge. Thanks for letting us pour some gravy in your ear. Did we can it first?